Welcome to this week's Dewsbury Gospel Church podcast with Pastor Ward. He has said in his word that there are none righteous, no, not one. And uh, we can be so near, you know, to being a good person that we feel that, well, surely God must see that I'm trying to do good. And yet, you know, he will not accept us on the basis of what we think is our goodness. He accepts us only on the basis of his son, Jesus. In other words, the standard for entrance into heaven is to be like Jesus. And you think, well, that's a tall order. That means nobody's going to make it. But the fact is, of course, Jesus, uh, he took your sin and my sin to the cross so that it could be dealt a death blow because it says the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. And therefore, the only answer for sin is death. God has declared it. But thank God that Jesus didn't stay buried. He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead, showing that he had victory over sin and sickness and death and poverty and everything that ails mankind. And he said that when he went to the cross... He put us in himself so that we were buried, we were crucified, and we rose again. And we have ascended on high. Amen. That's if you're in Jesus. And of course, uh, we have to call on his name. We have to accept his forgiveness and his cleansing. We have to repent and turn from our sin. And, uh, and God accepts us on that basis. And of course, the book that we've been studying for the last uh, few months is the book of Jonah, and uh, it's an amazing book, and sometimes, you know, we think of God as a God of wrath and anger, particularly against uh, people in the Old Testament, because we see that occasions when he had to deal with so much sin that he had to wipe out all nations. And yet, in this book, we, uh, we see that it carries so much of the gospel of our Lord Jesus in it. And Jesus himself quoted uh, about Jonah because the people were looking for signs and saying, show us a sign and we'll believe you. And uh, these were the uh, Israel, the Jews, and they, they were being challenged, particularly the Pharisees, the scribes. They were being challenged by this man who went about doing good, who was performing miracles which they knew they couldn't do. And of course, they were challenging him And he said, you will get no other sign than the sign of Jonah. And as Jonah was in the uh, belly of the fish, then so will the Son of Man be in the very depths of the earth. And uh, he was referring that for three days and three nights, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale or the big fish, so that would happen to Jesus. But, of course, we know that Jonah came out And uh, as the fish spewed him on the ground, and of course we were looking at that last week, that uh, it was a type of resurrection. And uh, some people would hold that, that in fact, Jonah did die in the sea as he was thrown overboard. And this great fish came and swallowed him up. And three days later, God commanded the fish to vomit uh, Jonah out onto the land. And of course, very much uh, an indication of what we... Uh, know that Jesus was saying of how he would indeed be dead for three days, but he would uh, again uh, come alive after three days and three nights. And, and so 
it was speaking very much of, of the very fact of, of the power that, uh, of the resurrection is the power that God puts in you and me when he gives us eternal life. So that were we to pass away uh, this day uh, from this earth, knowing the Lord Jesus, that we actually uh, become present with him, which Paul said it's far better for us to actually go and be with him than to stay. But as uh, he said, that the reason uh, I'm still here is because God has indicated that it's better that I stay for your sake. And you know that that's why we're all here. We're all here for the sake of someone else. Today, tomorrow, you may get the opportunity to tell someone about the love of God and what you have found in Jesus and that he will forgive them their sins if they will call on his name. They can have a new start, a brand new start. This is what God offers. The amazing thing is in this book of Jonah, we find that here is a man of God, a man who has spoken with kings previously, he has seen uh, all kinds of things take place and now God gives him a special commission to go to the wickedest people on earth because the people uh, in Assyria at this time, they, they were notorious for the way that they, they captured their enemies and put them to death in the most horrible ways. And uh, they were the arch enemy of Israel. So Jonah being a prophet of God, and uh, having a very clear sense of, of, of God's people being under the direction of God, when God told him to go and preach to the Ninevites in Assyria, which was the, probably the greatest uh, city of its time and would be equivalent of somewhere like New York or London today, it carried something, be, they say, probably between 600,000 and a million people. It took 60, uh, it was about 60 miles in circumference. It took three days to actually travel all the way around it. This was a great city. And here was the prophet Jonah being told by God that he had to go and preach a message of repentance to them and that if they responded that God would, would uh, save these people. And Jonah said, no way, God. I've seen this all before. You can't make people good who are so wicked. You can't do this thing. And so he decided he wasn't going to do what God told him to do. He was going to run. And so often, you know, when God challenges and tells us to do something for him, there's a danger that we might, in a way, do the same thing. We may uh, take the wrong turn. We may say, hey, I'm not going to do that, God. I'd prefer to do this. And so he actually buys a ticket uh, to Tarshish, which was probably as far away as he could get from uh, uh, Nineveh. And uh, that would have taken him probably right over to uh, uh, Spain. And of course, on that travel, uh, a storm breaks up. The, the sailors are so uh, afraid. These are mariners that are used to storms, but they hadn't experienced anything quite like this. And they, they began to call upon their God. They threw all the cargo over to light the load to try and preserve the, uh, the ship. Uh, but it just got worse and worse. And then they, they, the captain, he said, you guys, you better start calling on your God. Uh, whoever your God is, uh, it's obviously going to be a divine uh, deliverance if we're going to get free of this. And so they all began to call on their God, but nothing happened. Then they remembered this chappy, uh, this Israelite, who had uh, bought a ticket 
uh, we better go see him because he said something about his God that he was running away from him. And uh, so they, the captain goes down into the hold and there is Jonah fast asleep. He wakes him up and said, Jonah, you know, you, you, we're in serious trouble and here you are asleep. Well, Jonah, I don't know. He, uh, he doesn't take too much thought, I think, for his own life at this time. He was probably realizing he was running away from God and, you know, uh, that can be a, a miserable place to be in. He knows that really he was disobeying God. And so uh, the captain shakes him and he says, you better call on your God because you told us you were running away from your God and, uh, and you need to call upon him. We're, we're trying to get this storm abated. And so Jonah says, well, this is the only answer to this storm is me, is I know that this storm is from God. He says, but if you throw me overboard, the storm will stop. And at first, they didn't want to accept, uh, you know, to do this to him. And they, uh, the sailors began to row for all that they were worth. This is obviously contained in these uh, early chapters of Jonah. And uh, the more they rowed, the fiercer the storm got. And then they decided, well, we're going to do what he told us to do. And so they throw him overboard. And immediately that he hits the water... The storm abates, stops completely. The sailors are saved, but Jonah's gone down into the deep. And it says that he literally went to the bottom of the, the ocean. And he, he, he gives an account, as we were reading last week, of how the seaweed was round his head and uh, he was calling on his God in the last minutes, it would seem. And uh, as we were saying, it takes about a minute and a half to drown. And in the space of that time, uh, Jonah had all these things going through his mind. The next thing is that we read that God commanded this fish to come along to swallow up Jonah. And, uh, and so he was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And then we find that it literally vomits him up onto the seashore. And so there is Jonah. Probably back where he started, the Jews indicate that he actually uh, landed up back in Israel. So this great fish had swum back um, to the land. And God gives him exactly the same message. He says, Jonah, you've got to go and preach to the Ninevites. And so he really didn't want to do that. But reluctantly he thought, I better do it because, you know, God has performed this incredible miracle for me. He's preserved my life, but he's still not happy about the situation. So we look at chapter 4. This is the last chapter. You can read the whole book of Jonah in four, uh, well, maybe 15 minutes, I would say, um, and you get a this is a great story. We, we find it's often portrayed in children's books. Uh, the children love the story of Jonah and the whale. But basically, we realize it is one of the most profound books in the Old Testament. It tells of the greatest happening that's ever been in the way of revival. We hear of great revivals. We can study books of revival. I've read many books on revival. But in fact, this is the greatest revival that has ever been. And it took place in a godless area called Nineveh. So if we think, could God bring a revival? We've had revival in Jewsbury over 200 years ago through one of Wesley's men. And uh, that was a, probably, it's been called one of the greatest revivals that ever took place. 
But of course, it didn't match the revival in Nineveh. Billy Graham, uh, when we, we saw that clip of Billy Graham, he said, this clearly was the greatest revival of all time. The reason being that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl was saved. They repented of their sins and got saved, the whole city. There's never been a revival like that. There's been great revivals, not, but not where everybody is born again. Just imagine that happening in Dewsbury, which is at most a tenth of the size population-wise of Nineveh. Just imagine if that took place. I don't know, 60,000, 70,000 people get born again today because revival sweeps through the town on the, on the same scale as Nineveh. Where would we put them all? Not all the churches in Jewsbury could contain them. That would be something. And yet, you know, the Bible tells that God is going to bring a great revival before Jesus comes back again. Wigglesworth prophesied about it. He had three great prophecies before he passed away back in 1947, I think it was. And two of them have already taken place. Uh, one shortly after his death was the, uh, the growth of the healing evangelist. He said that healing would become predominant again. Miracles of healings would take place. And so many healing evangelists uh, emerged uh, in the 1950s. There were healings, uh, of course, before that. The Jeffrey brothers were probably the most well-known who were... Uh, men of God who uh, were seeing incredible miracles, um, George Jeffries and Stephen Jeffries, brothers. God used them tremendously. The guy who you heard, first of all, on that film, um, of course, was Reinhard Bonke, and uh, he actually went searching for George Jeffries' home when he was over before his ministry started, and uh, other men of God have had the touch of healing uh, in their ministries through a recognition of, of what God did through men like that. But there was a, just a, a, a tremendous uh, outflow of God's grace and mercy through those who began to uh, start healing ministries. Then he prophesied that all of the denominations, and at that time there were very few that more, it was kind of Pentecostal churches that taught about a baptism of the Spirit. But Wigglesworth prophesied that, that what uh, would happen, um, and it, of course it began to start, I think maybe in the early 60s, 70s, was the great charismatic movement, and, uh, and he indicated that, that people would say that this was the great revival, but it wasn't. But he said that the, the baptism of the Spirit would begin to be taught in, uh, in all the mainline denominations and the Baptist churches and the Methodist churches and Anglican churches. And of course, to some extent, that started happening. And you can hear uh, men of God from all denominations will talk that they've had an experience of baptism in the Spirit that tended to be for uh, the kind of mainline Pentecostal churches from like 1900 through Azusa Street in America and the even in the Welsh Revival there were those things recorded. But basically we, we see that his prophecies that he, uh, he had from the Lord have all come true. And then he said, but the third major uh, thing that, that he believed that God was showing him was that the end time revival would usher in the return of the Lord Jesus. There are indications that, uh, of course, there are revivals taking place in South America, in Africa, and, uh, and yet there's indications that there's going to be such a tremendous move in this nation 
that will affect all of Europe and probably through uh, the United Kingdom and Germany where, of course, the Reformation started through Martin Luther. Uh, there's a, this grace of God being seen by those who were locked into uh, Catholicism that uh, was saying, you know, and of course, he's, I've been looking at this. I know um, uh, children do this in our school. They have to do essays on Martin Luther and his life and, and how he, uh, he began to study the Word of God and, and see that the indulgences that were expected to kind of buy your way into heaven was, was just so false and uh, began to see that we are justified by faith. And he brought in that great uh, understanding. It was there in the Word of God, but of course, in those days, people were not able to read the Bible for themselves. It was in Latin, and, uh, and therefore, the ordinary man in the street had no idea of really what the Bible was saying. And so he began to translate uh, into language that the ordinary man could read in Germany, this, of course, was. And, of course, there were other men of God, even prior to that, that had been uh, bringing the truth of the Word to the ordinary man. And here we are with this tremendous book and the promises. And, you know, I believe that if we really get a hold of, of what this book of Jonah is all about, it could transform our life, our thinking. We were seeing last week that uh, the important thing that Jesus said was to seek first the kingdom. And I knew that scripture, and, and God's been impressing that on my heart. Uh, he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And that's a tremendous truth to get hold of. So that if I kind of put God first, but, but God kept saying back to me, but seek first. This is the first thing. And when God says do the first thing, we should do the first thing. But so often we've got other things in our mind. Um, but what is the prime purpose for the believer is to seek first his kingdom. You see, what we want to do is put first our own uh, thoughts and our activities and what we want in life. And we kind of say, well, that's all right, God. I'll trust you. I'll go to church. I'll do this. I'll read my Bible and so on. But he's saying, but no, seek first the kingdom. And so we were singing, you know, songs this morning about the kingdom, you know, and, uh, and so when Jesus said, seek first, that should be our first thought. What do you want me to do, Lord? And he'll say, seek first the kingdom. And, you know, we all can serve and seek first the kingdom. And we, and we, uh, we need one another to do that because God has called us to do it collectively. So while it, it's an individual challenge, the only way we can actually fulfill it in its total is to be his body, to be his church here on earth. That's why he puts us together. That's why he said that when two or three uh, come together in my name, there am I in the midst. In other words, he does it through people, through his body. God is a people person, as you'll see in this incredible book of Jonah. He had one thing in mind, you see, and it was these people, though they were the wickedest people on earth, God had a plan and design, and he asked for everyone. God doesn't write anybody off. And sometimes you might think, well, this is a godless nation. We're hearing of what's taking place, even in schools where God has been so marginalized. Our government are trying to uh, write the, the, the rules concerning marriage, contrary to what God has said. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to take the word of God out of our society completely, 
and so that we don't have to go by God's standards. You see, the thing is that when, when you come to get with God's standards, it calls you a sinner because you realize you're not meeting the requirements that God has set. And the only way that you can meet the requirements of God is through his son, the Lord Jesus, by receiving him. That's why in, in our schools, they never teach history going back to Adam and Eve. Because if they have to teach about Adam and Eve, then they have to also confront this thing about sin. Because this is what separated Adam from God in the beginning. And we've got to deal with the issue of sin. If you start later on in history, you don't have to confront that. You know, we, and of course, people forget ever to teach about the beginning of man. Of course, they would say, well, that was only a fairy story. It didn't really happen quite like that. It's quite convenient. You can ignore uh, the issue of sin that way. Therefore, we can get into humanistic thought and think, well, you know, man can make his way in this world. He can make things right. We've been trying to do that for thousands of years. And this world is just getting worse and worse because the root problem is sin in mankind. Man is after his own designs and his own desires. Sad to say, even our British Empire, which was a great empire, though I believe it, it was, became great because there was righteousness being taught through people like Wesley and, uh, and these people, and we had a, a sense of God's righteousness in lots of ways, but then the greed of man caused the empire uh, to expand so much that we were taking from people rather than giving into it. And therefore, we realize, of course, that ultimately that would come to an end as it did. And so, all of these things, you know, this is a tremendous history book. And um, we were watching um, Andrew yesterday, and uh, he's actually talking about his Thanksgiving, of course, this week, and it's a big thing in America. But um, he had David Barton, who's an incredible historian, and uh, particularly with uh, American history. And he goes right back to the early church fathers, you know, the pilgrim uh, fathers as they settled in America and how America was just started on the word of God's truth. And, uh, and, and of course, since then, America is getting as equally bad as we are in respect of taking the Bible out of schools and all the rest of it. And so uh, he, uh, he has actually got all of these incredible documents that he has, he has searched for. And he's got the original documents concerning what the Pilgrim Fathers set out to do and the Constitution and how it's been twisted by government over the years. And uh, you can still uh, get hold of uh, uh, David Barton if you get tuned into uh, Got Channel and uh, listen. It really is worth... I know Barnabas, he's quite keen on... Always watching it, I thought it might be um, American history. Uh, and it... But because of, of this incredible teaching, and they've got a man there who is actually going into schools as well, and they're having to rewrite the curriculum in schools because he's confronted some of the schools that are, are producing material uh, in, in education. And uh, I think it was in California, and uh, he, he sent all of the documentation. And they, they actually wrote back to him and said, we hate you, we hate what you stand for, but we have researched what you have uh, put forward and we found it to be true. And therefore, they said we are going to change the actual uh, 
things that we have been teaching. The sad part is they found that uh, California was in such a financial chaos that they couldn't afford to uh, republish everything. And so, as far as I know, it's still not actually in print, but they have accepted his position. Interesting. Now, you know, we, but what it tells us that we need to seek first the kingdom. We need to teach people about the kingdom. doesn't matter whether it's our MP or whatever, but the standards that we have in the word of God. And, but we, we have to commit ourselves into this. Uh, it's no good as just, you know, saying these things. But if we really seek first the kingdom, and we, we need to see kingdom principles really accepted by our government, and we can, through the grace and power of God, there's no reason why we couldn't see a revival that takes place and there becomes a change about in thinking. Only God can do that. But you know what? He's chosen his church to do it. And so he works through you and me. Now, if individually we commit to seek first the kingdom and together we begin to to say this is really what we're about. You see, we can be thinking what we're about here is to build a bigger church, get more people in and uh, see things happen. And, And we make that kind of our priority. But the priority is seek first the kingdom. And in the process of doing that, yes, all these other things will take place because that's what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom and all these other things that you're desiring will be added to you. But if we can get it right, you see, and and that's why the first principles, it's like when we come to give. Jesus says, out of the first fruits, I want you to give. So whatever comes to you, he says, out of that, give unto me. The reason being is that when we give unto him, he can give back to us all that we need to do the things that God has called us to do. It's a way of seeing kingdom principles activate. And there's kingdom principles in the way of giving, the way that we do certain things, apply his principles, and they will work because it's God's word. But sometimes you say, well, no, it can't quite be like that, can it? Well, yes, it is, because that's how Jesus operated. How could he do the things that he did? How could he open the eyes of the blind? How could he do all the incredible miracles that we read about? Simply because he was seeking first his father's voice. He said, I don't do anything other than what I hear him say or what I see him telling me to do. Those are the things that Jesus did. In other words, what he was doing, he was seeking his father's kingdom. When he went into the temple and he saw all the things that were taking place that were an abomination and he turned to the priests and he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. You are doing these things, you're taking from the poor, you're taking these things, you're putting heavy loads upon them. And basically what he's saying is you need to get back to the first principles of what my father's house is all about. And he said, my father's house is a house of prayer. In other words, that's where we communicate with God. And a lot of sometimes what we don't realize is the most important thing to our God is that we are in communication with him all the time. And uh, it takes the heaviness out of prayer as well. We just talk with him. He is our daddy. And we should be talking to him as we would talk father to son or son to father. And he loves that. 
And that's why I say you can come in with boldness to the Father's place that he's got for you. You can enter right into his presence with boldness, knowing that you have access to him 24-7. He is never late. He is never away. He is never on vacation. He is always listening for your voice. You know, we, uh, we weren't seeking him. He was seeking us. It came over on the screen there, didn't it? You know, that, uh, that basically we can get this idea that uh, religions, you see, they're all... Uh, trying to find God, trying to seek for God. But in our faith, it was God who came looking for you and me. He found us when we weren't looking for him. But that's God's nature. We'll see that uh, as we... uh, I'll read this final chapter of Jonah. Uh, As I say, you can read all of it in 15 minutes, so uh, maybe... Uh, if you've not read this book for some time, read it through. You can read it through so easily. It reads really easily. It's not confusing. It's a, it is a true story. Uh, the very fact that Jesus referred to it tells us that this really did happen. It really was true. But this is after, I said, he's been um, uh, thrown back onto the land. The fish has vomited him up. He now has responded to what God's call was to go and preach to these people. And so we'll pick it up in the last verse of chapter 3. It says, God saw their works. This is Nineveh. The king of Nineveh has said, we're going to fast. We're going to call on God. We're going to ask him to forgive us because otherwise we will be destroyed as a people. And so it says, then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. And in chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. Wow. Now, you would have thought, if you were an evangelist and you had preached a message and you'd seen thousands giving their life to God, confessing their sins, you would have been pleased. Not Jonah. It says he was displeased. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Our Lord, Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? 
And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? And there it finishes. Quite abrupt finish. Doesn't give any further explanation. Doesn't tell us any more about Jonah. So it's an interesting conclusion. I believe that God finished it in that way for a reason. So we find that Jonah was not a happy chappy. Basically, he didn't want these people saving He's still adding his mind, you see, because to be fair to Jonah, he'd seen this all before. And we read about Jonah uh, back in 2 Kings. If you've got your Bibles, you might just turn to 2 Kings 14. For one thing, this proves that Jonah really was a historical person. That uh, It's not just that we read about it in the book of Jonah, but... Uh, he actually was preaching uh, in the uh, time of an evil king called Jeroboam. He was Jeroboam the second, and this king was evil also. Um, but he had risen in Israel. Now, the, he, as a king, he was a mighty warrior, and he had many victories, and, uh, but basically he had no thoughts for God. And you find that in the history of Israel. Often there would be an evil king, and then... As a nation, they would go down spiritually, and uh, ultimately their enemies came and attacked them. Uh, at times, they had good kings like Hezekiah, and, uh, and again, these kings would find the word of God, and they would begin, begin to teach the Israel people once again about God's word. And as a nation, they would rise, they, they would prosper, and, uh, and have victories, um, But in the time of Jonah, he was ministering uh, in the place of God's prophet to the king. And uh, in verse 23, we read this. This is uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 14. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned forty-one years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amatei, the prophet who was from Gath-Ephah. So it tells us that, that Jonah was a very... Um, historical guy, he'd been around a long time, but can you see why Jonah was so against what God was proposing to do to send him to preach to the people of um, Nineveh? Because this king, he had been prophesying too all those years, and he said this king never repented. He always was the same. And so Jonah was carrying that information over and he's saying, God, I know what kind of a God you are. You're a God of mercy. You're a God who forgives people. But look what happened with Jeroboam. He never repented. He never changed. He got worse. 
He led Israel into sin, and you're wanting me to go preach to these people who are the most evil people on earth, and all they're going to do is turn around and they're going to conquer us as a nation. He was very pro-Israel, was Jonah. He really believed in his nation. And he believed, perhaps wrongly, that God could only center his love upon them as a people. But what we find in Jonah is that we see that God has a worldwide heart. It doesn't matter who we are, what our background is, what we've done. God says, I love you, because that's his nature. And Jonah hadn't understood this, you see. So this is the great lesson that we find in Jonah. We see here, even under the old covenant, God is a God who is merciful. You know, when it, that last verse that I read out of Jonah, it says that there were 120,000 persons who cannot discern their right hand from their left hand. Well, that tells us that, that these were 120,000 children, babies, They hadn't come to a place where they could recognize which was their right hand and their left hand. God is saying, I'm seeing these wicked people, but I'm also seeing 120,000 babies. And his mercy and his love was to give them an opportunity to repent and to turn to him. But Jonah was exceedingly displeased, it says. He says, this is what I told you, God, back in the land of Israel. This is why I didn't want to go. And so he speaks to God. He says, was not this, this is verse 2, what I said when I was still in my country. Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. You know, we get all the answers in chapter 4 about why Jonah fled. And he says, this is the reason I ran. This is why I didn't want to go and preach because I knew what kind of a God you were and that you were going to offer these people salvation. And so he says, I I know you're a gracious, merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Thank God we have a God like that. We don't have a God who, you know, will chop your hand off for stealing or whatever. We have a God who is merciful And irrespective of how we've lived our life, even today, God says, you know what? I'm willing to forgive you. All you have to do is come and receive my forgiveness, repent of your sins, turn to my son, the Lord Jesus, who has died for your sins. Call on his name and he will save you and he will give you a brand new life and he will give you his righteousness. You see, our sin was put upon him but God says, when you receive me as your Lord and Savior, I put my righteousness that's in me into your heart, into your spirit, and you become a new man. All things have passed away. Everything becomes new. And so um, Jonah is still finding it difficult with God. He actually decides he's going to go to the east part of the city of Nineveh. He's going to sit on the hillside there, and he says, I'm just going to wait, God. I'm going to watch and to see what happens with these people. You've forgiven them. They say they've repented, every one of them, but I know better. Sometimes we think we know better than God, but that's not the way it is. And so he decides to do this. I suspect that this was the height of summer, and the sun was beating down, and, uh, and he, he begins to call on God. He says, look, you know, you might as well take my life. That's why he was willing to be thrown overboard. He was in that depressed state, thinking, I might as well, you know, uh, die anyway. 
I can't see any future in this. You know, depression is an awful thing, comes upon people at times. Uh, as I myself were talking about this yesterday, you know, and uh, people get into depressed states. And yet, you know, as believers, there is no reason why we should ever be depressed. There really isn't. You actually allow depression to come upon you. As a believer, if you start affirming about God, who he is, what he has done for you, the, the joy that uh, was in Christ to uh, even go to the cross for us, knowing that he could make us new people, that he would also then say, I'm the Lord your shepherd, you shall not want. You know, read Psalm 23, if you ever feel depressed. Nobody was challenged more than probably King David who wrote that. And he said, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fare no evil for you with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, we need to take the word of God into our heart and into our spirit. Because the devil will try to put depression upon you. He'll try and fill your mind with all the concerns of life. And what about this? And what about that? And what if this happens? And what about that? But God said, but I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. You know, he has made so many promises. They say there's over 7,000 promises in the Word of God that we can receive. And by faith, you can see activated in your life. But we can allow ourselves to not think on those things that God has said about us. And we can go the same way as Jonah did and said, you might as well take my life. I can't see any reason for living. And yet God had many things for Jonah to do. And so he says, therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city, sat on the east side of the city there. He made himself a shelter and sat in the shade of it till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant. This is, again, what you have here is a God who is so uh, merciful And here is Jonah, he's sat on this east side of the city, the sun is beating down, he kind of makes himself a shade. What does God do? He gets a plant to grow. You know, you get eight miracles in the book of Jonah, by the way, Uh, actual physical miracles, this is one of them. He has this plant grow, I don't know, I've I've never seen a plant grow um, sufficiently to shade you in the matter of a day, but this plant... We, we, we had a sunflower that grew and we, we had, we'd done a kind of a thing on our balcony and we got plants in. Unbeknown to us, there must have been just a sunflower seed in there and this thing started growing uh, just at one side and it literally grew to this size and of course all the other plants, the geraniums and others were down here. And I said, where did that come from? But it must have already been contained, you know, in uh, one of the plants as we bought them. And this came out with a great big head on it. And, uh, but it didn't do it overnight, but it grew so quickly. And uh, I understand that they only, there are annuals, so uh, we've had to cut that down now. But it had loads of heads on it and, and so on. Uh, but, but God actually sees poor old Jonah in all of this misery, wishing that he was dead. And, uh, and he, he sees that he, even the shelter is made, it isn't going to shade him fully. And so this, this great plant, some people think it was one like a castor plant or something, but um, this, this is some, some supernatural thing that God did. And it literally was to shade him from the heat of the sun. And, uh, and 
Jonah was so thankful for this. It says, The Lord God prepared a plant, made it come over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. I'm not saying he was grateful to God, but for the plant at least, it was shading him. And he, there's nothing worse than you know, feeling miserable and then you've got this intense heat. The, the only... Um, Apparently, this does happen in these countries. It gets so intense that, that you literally feel like dying, you know, because it's increased. We, we had an experience uh, quite a few years ago. We were in Crete, and we had driven from the northern part of Crete right to the other, to the southern side, beautiful beaches there, and, uh, and we'd hired a car. And it was, I guess it must have been round about maybe 80 degrees, in old money, I know it's uh, people you centigrade these days. What's that? Uh, Twenty-eight, twenty-seven, eight, about eighty degrees. So it was. It was just we like warm weather. We love warm weather. And then we realised that you know we, we wanted to get back uh, for uh, the evening, and so we, we got in the car. This maybe about three thirty in the afternoon, and uh, we'd only driven for about like fifteen minutes. And then this intense heat came, and we thought it was in the car. We thought, you know, the car's overheating, and uh, we, we just couldn't get over this. I said, and we didn't have air conditioning, and it's quite a few years ago, and cars in Greece didn't have air conditioning in those days anyway. And I, I wound the window down, only to realize the heat was outside and it was coming in. And uh, we really struggled on the rest of the journey. It was only about an hour's drive back. When we, we got back uh, to where the hotel was, the temperature had gone up to 120 degrees. So that's like uh, 40, about 49, 50 centigrade. Even the Greeks were flaking out. And it was intense. It was incredible heat. We never experienced anything quite like it. And uh, even at midnight, nobody went to bed that, that night. It was still 100 degrees at 12 o'clock at night. And uh, that was intense. So I can relate to a little bit maybe how Jonah felt at this time. This was intense heat. And of course, in verse 8, it says, It happened when the sun arose that God prepared uh, east wind. Um, and if that's exactly what this was that we, we found. In fact, we found out later that the, the, it was actually coming from Egypt and it was a wind uh, that, that blew right across to Crete and it happens every now and again. And it, it, it's so, so powerful that you really feel as if you're suffocating. And so it says, in this case, God prepared this wind. I think they call it Sirocco. Uh, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And of course, um, what, what it does say is that God, in verse 7 it says, as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. David Pawson said of all of the miracles in Jonah, he says he thinks that this was the greatest of them all, not even being swallowed by a whale. But the fact that God commands a worm to do what he tells it to do. No, you can get a dog to do what it, you know, it'll beg, sit and beg and so on. But anybody trained up a worm? You know, you'd probably make a lot of money if you could. 
do that. But God, as this worm, begin to possibly eat the roots of this plant so that, that it died overnight. So poor old Jonah's back to where he started from and um, he's, he's, again, not a happy chappy because now the, he says he, he's feeling so faint and he's, he's saying, I, I would rather die. But you see, God was using this to teach him something. It says, God said to Jonah... Is it right for you to be angry about the plant that you've lost the shade? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. You know, sometimes when we argue with God and we're saying, why this God and why that? Well, the problem with arguing with God is he's always right. He never makes a mistake. And so it is really futile to argue with God about the things that he has said. But again... It's not that God is, uh, he, isn't, he really is trying to get Jonah's attention. So God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which are more than 120,000 children who cannot discern between the right hand and their left and much livestock. In other words, God was trying to show him, you got pity on a plant. You were very pleased about the plants and that it was, it was doing good for you. And now that it's perished, you, you get angry. But here I am wanting to save all of this city by my grace and my mercy. And you are angry with me about that. So he's really trying to bring the whole thing home to him. There's a wonderful psalm, you know, and uh, it, it tells of, of this kind of love that God has got for us. And uh, uh, as I was looking at this and thinking of the shade that this plant was giving, you know that God, by his right hand, he comes. And the times when maybe you're feeling a little bit out of sorts. Things are not going too well for you. But, but God says, you know, my right hand is shade for you. And he's, he's always coming to put his hand over us, you know, to, to show his love and his protection. And in Psalm 121, the, psalm, uh, the psalmist writes this, just a short psalm, but he, uh, it was just this very fact of the shade of God's hand. And, and this is what the psalmist wrote. It says, I will, cry, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. And that's God's promise. And that, that is an old covenant promise. And we realize that when Jesus went to the cross, he said, I'm doing this for you and I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. It's the, the thing, you know, we think about Brian and uh, the fact that he's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, but the promise he was joining in with was the promise of the Lord. I've already gone to prepare a place for you. That 
where I am, there you will be also. And that is the place that he is. But that is the promise to every believer. You know, we will see Brian again. There's no doubts about that. Because where he is, we will be there also. Even to the thief on the cross. You know that there were two thieves on the cross, one either side. One of them repented as the people did in Nineveh. And one didn't. And so Jesus turned to the one who had actually said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was his confession of faith. He called him Lord. He realized that who he was, that he had a kingdom that could be entered into, the promise of eternal life. And Jesus turned to him and said, this day you will be with me in paradise. And he never got time to even serve Jesus. He never got time to do any good thing but it was on the basis of his confession of faith in who Jesus was that caused him to realize, praise God, even right, you can't get any nearer to death than that. Literally within hours, that man had entered into eternity. But so had the other one. The other one to be eternally separated from God. The other to be eternally present with the Lord. And so the decisions we make are obviously in this life. And, and Jonah was, was hearing God, I believe, at this time. Um, but God was trying to get his thinking sorted out. And while he was angry and while he was kind of bitter about what God was doing, God was still persevering with him. Isn't that good news? You know, even though as believers, sometimes we're not really maybe following through what God has called us to do. But he said, but I'm still here. I'm still waiting. I'm still uh, you know, wanting you to realize I'm still for you. I'm not against you. And so uh, the prophet was resentful concerning the Ninevites. He had no patience for what God was doing. He said they'll only turn, they'll only go back into their old ways. And yet we see, I believe, in this section, this chapter of Jonah, we actually see John 3.16 written right through it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was on the basis that God could see that his son one day would be dying for the sins of the whole world. And so under the old covenant, they were looking forward to a Messiah coming. We are looking back on one that's already been and done the work. But nevertheless, as many who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. And, and so these people in Nineveh, Clearly, they repented, and God accepted their repentance. And that's what God must see in us. He must see repentance. Without repentance, there's no, uh, no forgiveness of sins. We really have to recognize, as the king did, you know, the king in Nineveh, he commanded everybody in the whole city that they had to fast. They had to put sackcloth on to show their true repentance, and they fasted. He took off his, his kingly robes, and he became just like one of them tells us that God actually is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter whether you're kind of the laborer or the king of the country. You all have to come the same way. And that's what that king of Nineveh was prepared to do, and God accepted that. But just to close with, um, what, what it would be good for us to see is that Israel... We know we're a chosen nation. This is the problem that Jonah had. He had this feeling that, that, that God was only for Israel, when in fact God was for all of the creation. 
But he had chosen Israel for a specific purpose, and that was to show all the other nations the character of their God. This is where Jonah was failing to see that he needed to, to be understanding that God was a gracious God, he was a merciful God, and wherever there's repentance, he would forgive them. And so, again, this is, this is the great message that we, we have of God choosing Israel. But what has God done now? He has brought in the church that has to do exactly the same that, that Israel failed to do because they, they didn't recognize their Messiah, and uh, through him alone they could have achieved all that God called them to do. But now God has chosen his church. It's not that God has rejected Israel. He's still got a plan and purpose for them. And many Jews are actually turning to Christ even in these days. But ultimately, there is a plan that God has got for them as a people. And he will even raise up 144,000 evangelists to go throughout the, the earth and to preach the message of salvation. That's still to come. Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, will tell you that they're the 144,000, but they have misread the word of God. So in all of these things, Israel was chosen to bless all the nations. And God tried to show Jonah even with this plant and how it came to shade him that God could do this for all people that will call on his name. And he also wanted Jonah to realize this is how he feels about people. God loves people. He really does. We've all been made in his image and he wants us to realize that. So Jonah was a type, really, of national Israel. Um, but Jonah became a sign to the world. That's what Jesus said about Jonah. He said, you'll receive no other sign than that which I have given through Jonah. He is a sign to Israel. You know, if, if the Israelites began to really study the book of Jonah and began to realize, you know, what this would be teaching them, they could be transformed Again, you know that their enemies are camped all round about them, and yet God is still preserving them. The wonder of Israel is that they are still there as a people. They should have been wiped out centuries ago, but God still had a plan for them. And as Hitler came to try to destroy them, and, and the history of Israel is how they've uh, been got at through nation, including this nation. We turned against them even when they were voting for them to go back into their land. And we, we didn't vote and say no, but we abstained, which is probably even worse. It's a little bit like being lukewarm. But as a nation, we also found that we began to lose our strength and power from that time on. And so God very much has, uh, has not done away with his people. But it remains through uh, what we've read here that God loves the Gentiles and that uh, Jonah was a sign even to Gentile nations that if God was ready to forgive Nineveh, the worst of all the nations at that time, how much more is still ready to receive nations? Isn't it amazing that we are seeing nations that were totally atheistic coming to, to God in these days? The way God opened uh, Russia and the things that happened there when communism fell. There were countries like Albania that uh, were completely closed, and now we can get missionaries in there. But it could be for a short period of time before Jesus comes back. So, beloved, as uh, it teaches here, we have a God of love and mercy. 
The church has got to seek first the kingdom. That's really what God was trying to get through to Jonah. Seek first my will, Jonah, and uh, do it my way, not your way. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And in so doing, we will begin to fulfill God's purpose on this earth. Amen. So great lessons in Jonah, and uh, it's a book of revival, no question about it. Never has there been a case like that before or since. And, uh, and yet, the promises are, the tide is coming in. And if our brother in Wales, who is now 101 years old, a prophet of God, said, the uh, tide that comes in will not ebb. It will not go back. Every revival has come, and it's gone back out again. But this one that God wants to bring in is coming in to stay. And we can see millions swept into the kingdom. Rana Bonke says, you know, that we're here to populate heaven, an empty hell, you know. There should be more people in heaven than in hell. And God's grace and mercy is for that to happen. You know, we're on God's side. Amen. We're not opposing, as Jonah was opposing God, saying, don't have mercy. We can fall into that trap and say, what about all of these peoples that have come into our nation and they're taking our jobs and all of this kind of thing? Well, God has brought the mission field to us. Praise God. Could Islam go the same way as communism? I believe it can because there's one true God. When uh, all peoples begin to realize this God is for us, he's not against us. He wants to heal us, he wants to set us free, he wants to do miracles, he, he wants to bless our children, then God will do it again. Amen. Father, we, we bless you for the call that you put upon us to seek first the kingdom of God. We realize, Lord, what a gracious God we serve. As we study your word, Father, we see how in spite of the wickedness of these people, and you actually said that the wickedness had come up before you, and therefore you looked for a man to go and tell the people that, that you were still willing to preserve them, to keep them. And yet, Father, we know that while you're a patient God, there is also a time when your patience will, will come to an end. We know that you will ultimately bring judgment on this earth. When you cut all things uh, and you bring them to an end, as we know the Lord Jesus will return one day, and he will bring judgment against all the enemies of God's people. Uh, Father, we know that this is still the time of grace. This is still the day, the day of salvation when we can call upon your name. And we pray, Father, as your people here, that even as you called us to be the body of Christ, to be his body on this earth, receiving his anointing, receiving his words to do his will, we pray, Lord, you might call us to join together in this common purpose of seeking first the kingdom and that we know that everything else will be added unto us even as it's required. We give you praise, we give you thanks, and we praise that wonderful name of Jesus who is the Savior of the world. We give him thanks for his commitment to us as the people of God that he longs to do those many things that he was doing on the earth through his body at this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. 
For more information, please check out www.jewsforgospelchurch.org.uk